0: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, I look around this morning and I see some of you that are dressed casually. I see some of you that are dressed Dressed up more, I see some of you that are dressed up more that probably wish you were dressed casually, and probably not too many of you dressed casually wish you were dressed up more, but you never know about these things. You can tell something about a person based on what they wear and how they present themselves. The clothes that we wear are a major factor in how we present themselves, aren't we? Right or wrong, we often draw conclusions about people based on what they wear, For instance, when you see a person wearing fatigues and cowboy boots, you, you, uh, I'm sorry, fatigues and combat boots. If you see him wearing fatigues (laughs) and cowboy boots, I don't know what you would conclude about that. (laughs) A mixed up cowboy. uh. When you see a person wearing fatigues and combat boots, you conclude military. Or if you see somebody wearing a white lab coat and wearing a stethoscope, you probably will conclude that they're a doctor or a nurse. You see somebody with a blue uniform, with a badge and a gun, good good possibility that they're a law enforcement. Or a bandana, leather jacket, vest and boots, you probably will conclude that they're a biker. You know, if you see somebody wearing beads, bell bottoms, tie-dye and buttons that say make love not war you're probably going to conclude that they're a 70s flower child or maybe a Houghton College student. Uh, It depends. We draw conclusions about and we often respond to others based on what they wear. Is it plain or flashy? Are they wearing bright colors or soft pastels? Do the various pieces of clothing match? All of these factors figure in to our conclusions about others. In our passage of Scripture this morning, the Apostle Paul uses clothing imagery to talk about the Christian life. He talks about taking off the old self and putting on the new. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles back to this passage that uh, Pastor, Red, uh, Pastor West read just a few minutes ago from Colossians 2, 20 to three seventeen. In this passage of Scripture, Paul is writing to the Colossians to address some wrong theological and doctrinal teachings that had the potential to harm the church there. Among them, such things as angel worship, strict asceticism, uh, legalism, secret knowledge, and reliance on human wisdom and tradition. Now in the early part of this letter, Paul gives these Colossian believers high praise. He commends them for their faith and their love. But the Colossians ultimately were in danger of missing Christ. Christ is the one who can make us holy. Paul is concerned that in their sincere attempts to, to become holy and to be holy, he was concerned that they had become susceptible to teachings that lessened the significance of the finished work of Christ on the cross. How many of you here this morning have seen the Disney film The Lion King? few of you. There's a place in the film where the spirit of Simba's father, the dead king, says to his son Simba, you have become less than you are. You've become less than you are. And that's essentially what Paul is saying here. He's saying, here's what you are in position. You are children of God. Your life is in Christ. Now live up to that in practice. Paul is saying in this passage that if we want God's holiness, we need to set our hearts and our minds on things above. We need to surrender the reins of our lives to him and let him impart his holiness to us. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, I have a great need for Christ. I have a great Christ for my need. Paul says, you've died with Christ to the basic principles of this world. You've been raised with Christ, and your life is with Him now. You're a new person, and Christ is your holiness. So live your life like the new person you are. You've been washed, you've been made clean. Now you just need to change your clothes. And so, using the clothing imagery, He calls us to do two things He calls us to put off whatever belongs to the earthly nature, and to put on virtues consistent with life in Christ. There's the clothing imagery. Put off whatever belongs to the earthly nature. Take off those old smelly clothes. Look with me at chapter 3, verses 5 to 11. Paul says, put off whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then he lists some of the things uh, there for us, things that are of the flesh, the earthly nature, the things that you and I as Christians need to get out of our lives. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. E. Stanley Jones calls these sins the sins of the flesh. And at the heart of each of these is personal gratification of some kind. Now let me say a word about the whole matter of sexual sin. This is important. Any sex happening outside the confines of marriage is sexual immorality premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexuality, all of these are sexually immoral behaviors, and as such, they are sinful in the eyes of the Lord. Many would say, yes, but the whole world is doing it. Well, that may well be true, but that doesn't lessen the fact that it's still sin. If the whole world is doing it, then the whole world is engaged in sinful behavior. But that's all the more reason that you and I in the church need to put to death not only sexual immorality and and, uh, the practices that go with it, but also the sins of the heart, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. God calls us as his people, his church, to be different from the rest of the world. We live in a culture with broken sexuality, a world where sex doesn't mean much and is not sacred, marriage is denigrated, commitment is scoffed at, and vows are quickly and easily pushed aside. Ours is a society that's drunk with the desire for instant gratification. But when the intoxication of that instant gratification wears off, the inevitable result is is a hangover of shame, loneliness, emptiness, broken dreams, and shattered lives. What do we in the church have to say to our society about its broken sexuality? And how can we say anything at all if we are no different? God so much wants for His people to be pure. He calls us to put to death Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. He's not interested in gradually weaning us from these sins. The sinful nature and its evil deeds are to be decisively rejected once and for all. Verse 6 says, Because of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. Have you thought much about the wrath of God? Because God loves his church so much... He intensely desires that its members be pure. Now that doesn't mean that, 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 that God doesn't love those engaged in this kind of behavior. God loves everyone. And, and uh, someone once said, is, said that God is not against us uh, for our sin. He's for us against our sin. God is opposed to sin, not people. And there is grace and there is forgiveness for anyone who's caught in the trap of sexual sin. But make no mistake about it, God will punish justly uh, sexual immorality when it's continued to be practiced in the face of his holiness. God's wrath is actually for the benefit of his people. Paul goes on to say, You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger. Our human anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Rage, malice, slander, character assassination, essentially. Filthy language. E. Stanley Jones calls these the sins of disposition. Now, I doubt that there's anyone here this morning that can look at this list and say, I've never been guilty of any of these things. If you, think you're can, if you think that you can say that, let me just invite you to either check your pulse to see if you're still alive, or listen closely because we'll get to lying in just a minute. Again, this list reflects the culture that we live in. We live in a society that is saturated by violent attitudes, behaviors. In some ways, this, this is the flip side of the same coin, I think that we can all relate to this. When we're living for ourselves and our own pleasure and when we can't get what we want right away, when our desire for instant gratification is denied, we all have a natural tendency to become angry, don't we? Well, much of our society has allowed that anger and rage to progress to its logical end. And so the combination of anger and the need for instant gratification leads to broken relationships, abuse, violence, revenge. What do we as God's people have to say to a society like that? What can the church say to a culture that lives to get its own way? And are we really any different What do non-Christians think when they see divisions in the church or church splits or slander and lawsuits between Christians? Paul calls us to get rid of anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. He then says in verse 9, do not lie to each other. I think Paul knows that uh, we have a tendency to want to keep up appearances And sometimes lying to each other helps us to keep up appearances. Then as Kinlaw says, when the truth is shaded just enough to keep ourselves from looking bad, and when we know we ought to look bad, this is dishonesty. Embellishing the truth in order to appear circumspect is bearing false witness. The fact is, God knows our hearts. He sees us for who we are and for what we are, not for what we are pretending to be. C.S. Lewis said, We must lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. We may be able to get away with lying to others for a time, but we can never get away with lying to God. But you know what? When Christ is our holiness, we don't have to lie to each other. We don't have to pretend we're something that we're not. We know that we're not righteous, Christ is righteous, and he is the one who cleanses us and makes us righteous. Do not lie to each other. Why? Since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. There's the clothing imagery again. Off with the old, on with the new. And in that renewal, Christ is all that matters. He is enough. That's why it's important as we look at this passage that we don't miss the end of chapter 2 where Paul addresses the issue of legalism. Legalism and self-indulgence the sins of the flesh that we've just talked about, are really two sides of the same coin in many ways. You see, legalism also belongs to the earthly nature. The Colossians were in danger of missing Christ by relying on various forms of self-effort and religious works to achieve holiness. You see, morality serves the same function for the legalistic person that immorality does for the open rebel. It's an expression of self-reliance. One pastor put it this way. He said, The moral legalist is always the elder brother of the immoral prodigal. They are blood brothers in God's sight because both reject the sovereign mercy of God in Christ as a means of expressing their independence and self-sufficiency and self-determination. So Paul says, Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world... Why, as though you still belonged to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Now, scholars are divided over the meaning of the Greek phrase, which is here translated basic principles of this world, stoicheia to kosmu. But they do agree on the fact that whatever else this Greek phrase may mean, Paul uses it to refer to philosophies and worldviews which required individuals to perform various rites and rituals uh, as a way to earn God's favor, whether whether that be errant ideas from mystery religions or or even pressure from Jewish legalists to be circumcised and conform to the Jewish law. Paul says these philosophies, with their rules and regulations, they're useless And he gives two reasons, basically. He says they're destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings, and he says they have an appearance of wisdom, but lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. In other words, to make rules and regulations primary is to move Christ out of the center. In a nutshell, what Paul is saying here, in essence, is that, that we can legislate morality, That's what we do with laws, but we can't legislate righteousness. Any moral behavior that doesn't stem from faith in Christ becomes legalism. Dennis Kinlaw says, Religious people, in spite of all they do, will never be spiritual children. No human can ever achieve that by working. Paul is saying, you used to live according to those worldly principles, but you died with Christ to that way of living. You're not that person anymore. So why are you acting like you are? You have become less than you are. He says, you died with Christ and were raised with Christ. Seek things above and literally mind things above where your hope is. You died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Christ is our holiness. It's his divine nature in us that makes us holy, not our efforts to follow and obey rules and regulations. But it's oh so easy for us to subtly slip into a way of thinking that, that elevates rules and regulations as the path to holiness. The reality is rules and regulations can take a person out of sin for a time, but they can't take sin out of the person. If you put duct tape over the mouth of someone who swears like a sailor, does that take the profanity out of his heart? If you tie the hands of a kleptomaniac, will that take away her desire to steal? Some of you here today grew up hearing sermons against the big five, Dancing, drinking, gambling, smoking, and theater going. You can no doubt relate to the man who said, I heard messages against these things by the dozen. I heard very little about gossip, covetousness, a hateful spirit, and so on. He said, I observed that people who adopted this separated life often became Pharisaic and proud of their separation. And I heard very few sermons against such pride. Determining holiness according to outward standards of any kind, rules and regulations, knowledge, effort, class, status, whatever the case may be, all of these things lead to self-righteousness. We become proud of ourselves for how well we're doing, and, and when that happens, we will inevitably begin, almost imperceptibly perhaps, to look down on those around us who maybe aren't doing so well. John Piper, who doesn't shy away from speaking to the social ills of our culture, nevertheless warns against legalism. He said, I want to hate what God hates and love what God loves, and I know this beyond the shadow of a doubt, God hates legalism. Satan is so sly. He disguises himself as an angel of light, the apostle says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, He keeps his deadliest diseases most sanitary. He clothes his captains in religious garments and houses his weapons in temples. We as Christians have to be oh so careful, lest our focus slip off of Christ and into a self-righteous approach to other people when we are just as desperately in need of the cleansing power of the blood of Christ as anyone else. The Bible tells us that all our righteousness is as filthy rags. The Hebrew word picture concerning this statement is is compelling. In effect, all of our righteousness is like filthy, oozing, germ-ridden bandages that cover the leper's wounds. By ourselves and through our human laws and regulations, we will never achieve holiness. We have to receive it from Christ. All of our efforts will be in vain. Only Christ can make us holy. Paul calls us to put to death whatever belongs to the sinful nature, whether, whether self-indulgent behaviors or legalism. He invites us instead to put on virtues consistent with life in Christ, Look with me at verses 12 to 17. Essentially, Paul gives four instructions here. He says, clothe yourselves with the love of Christ, clothe yourselves with the peace of Christ, clothe yourselves with the word of Christ, and thankfully live in the name of Christ. And by the way, in each of these, the you is plural. Paul is talking to us as individuals within the church, but I think he's... He's also especially talking to the church as a collective body. He says, clothe yourselves with the love of Christ, first of all. Verses 12 to 14 are all one sentence in the Greek. And and here Paul calls believers to clothe themselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. A partial listing of the fruit of the Spirit. He then calls us to be people of forgiveness. Forgiving as the Lord has forgiven us. Instead of quarreling and nursing grudges, we're called to bear with each other and forgive one another. Why should we treat each other this way? Because that's how God has treated us. He forgave us our sins, so we should forgive one another. And Paul closes out the sentence by calling us to put on love over all these virtues because love binds them all together in perfect unity. All of the attributes mentioned above stem from love and are empty without love. John says in 1 John 4, 7, and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Clothe yourselves with the love of Christ. Secondly, clothe yourselves with the peace of Christ. In verse 15, Paul calls us not only to live in peace with one another, but to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, since as members of one body we have been called to peace. So let me ask you this morning, does the peace of Christ rule in your heart? This isn't just the absence of conflict. This is a peace that's characterized by unity of purpose and it's grounded in the the firm hope that in Christ all is well and all shall be well. The fact is the peace of Christ will never rule in our hearts if our hearts are occupied with the things of the earthly nature. The more we put off the vices Paul mentions and put on the virtues he lists here, the more we'll truly experience the peace of Christ on a continuing basis clothe yourselves with the peace of Christ. Thirdly, clothe yourselves with the word of Christ. Verses 16 and 17, again, are all one sentence in the Greek. And here Paul is calling us to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. God's word is a staple that our souls cannot live without. Do we have a hunger for God's word? Let the word of Christ live in us individually and as a church. How do we do that? The picture here is one of building one another up in the faith on an ongoing basis. And Paul gives several ways to do that. First of all, teaching and admonishing one another. How do we do that? Well, that's what happens in Sunday school. It happens in Wednesday night Bible study and prayer meeting. In children's church, Awana clubs, and other ministries of the church. That's what happens in small groups, home Bible studies, family devotions, and prayer, and so on. Are you taking advantage of the opportunities available to you to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly? You see, if we don't have the word in our hearts, we will have the world in our hearts, If we don't let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, it's a sure thing that the things of this world, the things of the sinful nature, will reign in our heart, separating us from God. Teaching and admonishing one another. He says, clothe yourselves with the word of Christ by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Singing has characterized the life of God's people since Old Testament times. Israel's birth as a nation was celebrated in song by, uh, as Miriam and Moses looked back on God's deliverance from Egypt. Song characterized God's people in the Old Testament as they walked faithfully before him. And the early church continued this pattern of singing in, in praise and adoration for their Lord. Joy is an inevitable byproduct of an intimate relationship with the Lord, and joy's natural expression is song. Song. We do this in most Sunday worship services, but it could certainly be done in in small group gatherings, at home with your family or wherever you are really. Are we taking advantage of opportunities to gratefully praise and worship God with our brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we singing the songs of the faith, theology-rich hymns, scripture choruses, psalms, and so on? This is an excellent way to clothe ourselves with the word of Christ. William Willimon maintains that holiness is about being and becoming a doxology, a song of praise to God in the midst of a world that does not know how to sing. Sing to God. Make a joyful noise if you can't sing. If you do it with heartfelt gratitude, it will be music to God's ears. The idea is to fill our hearts and minds with the things of God. We're to teach his word. We're to sing his word. We're to be consumed with his word. Clothe yourselves with the word of God. And the fourth thing is thankfully live in the name of Christ. Thankfully live in the name of Christ. Verse 17 says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In fact, each of the last three verses stresses the importance of thankfulness and gratitude. Thanksgiving should be a dominant characteristic of our Christian lives. Even when things aren't going our way, we should be thankful people. After all, considering all that God has done for us and is doing for us, gratitude should be a quality of our spirit and a habit of our soul. Clothing imagery. You died with Christ. You were raised with Christ. Therefore, put off your old self and put on your new self. There's an old sea story in the Navy about a ship's captain who inspected his sailors and afterward told the chief bosun that his men smelled bad. The captain suggested that perhaps it would help if the sailors would change clothes occasionally. And the chief responded, aye, aye, sir, I'll see to it immediately. So the chief went straight to the sailor's berth deck and announced, the captain thinks you guys smell really bad and wants you to change your clothes. Pittman, you changed with Jones. McCarthy, you changed with Kwiatkowski. And Brown, you changed with Schultz. Now get to it. Sometimes we're guilty, perhaps, of simply exchanging our sinful clothing, trading one set of sins for another. But Paul calls us to get rid of our sinful clothing and put on the clean clothes that only Christ can give. So the question for you and I is, what are you wearing today? Are you wearing the things of the earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, Greed, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, perhaps legalism? If you are, I invite you to to change your clothes. Take off those old dirty clothes and let Christ clothe you with his righteousness. Are you wearing the virtues that are consistent with life in Christ? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, peace, Forgiveness and love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Is the peace of Christ ruling in your hearts this morning? Is the word of Christ dwelling in you richly? Remember, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, whose you are this morning Colossians 3 12 12 reminds us of the absolute truth about who we are. We are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. As the Father's dearly loved children, His heart's desire is that we are clothed with His holiness. You know, He leaves that choice to us. How will you choose to clothe yourself this morning? with the old self, with its self-indulgent practices, or the self covered with the love and grace of God. May the words of Charles Wesley be our individual and corporate prayer this morning, the words we sang in our opening hymn. Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this truth from your word. We thank you that you are the one who calls us to be holy, who desires us to be holy, And we thank you that you are the one who is able to make us holy. I pray, Lord, that as we examine our lives this morning, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to the dirty clothes we may be wearing this morning. And give us grace that by the power of your Spirit, we may be able to change our clothes, to take off the things of the earthly nature. And put on new life in Christ and the virtues that are consistent with life in Christ. And we thank you that you are continuing to work in us that which is pleasing to you. And we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.